Welcome to the Iowa Idea Podcast. Join host Matt Arnold for in-depth conversations with artists, designers, entrepreneurs, and civic leaders as he explores how they approach their craft and represent a modern version of the Iowa Idea. This podcast tells the stories of Iowa natives, transplants, and friends who demonstrate the Iowa Idea in the 21st century. That's why we have summer school. On this episode of the Iowa Idea Podcast, I'm joined by Dr. Robert Hansard. Robert is an associate professor of African Atlantic history at Columbia College Chicago. West African culture and history and its circulation throughout the Atlantic world serves as his central academic focus. Robert and I discuss his journey from a sense of places and spaces and how his experience in Rockford, Des Moines, Chicago, and West Africa have shaped his interests. We shared some fond memories of our high school teachers, including the late, great Katie Benson. Robert's journey to his Ph.D. work and continued research interests include West African Gold Coast cultures and histories, Afro-Atlantic inspirations to the Maroons, free blacks, and slave struggles for freedom and identity in the Caribbean and North America. We explore the history of the Maroon people. And for fans of the podcast, you might remember our conversation with Howard Allen and the inspiration of the Maroon people for his business. For the record, Howard, Robert, and I all attended high school at the same time. Robert discusses the research for his next book focused on 500 African narratives, which synthesizes 500 published accounts of African narratives of people that were enslaved and ended up in America. We touch briefly on the role of humor in understanding and confronting and challenging a polished, whitewashed version of U.S. history. We also talk about the importance of trust between researcher and participants when conducting qualitative research. Robert's most recent book is entitled Identity, Spirit, and Freedom in the Atlantic World, the Gold Coast, and the African Diaspora. I appreciate Robert's perspective on the importance of finding one's own voice when doing their research, the benefits of finding a good mentor, and the power of asking the right question. Robert highlights how there's room for innovation in the way we understand and process history. It was an honor having Robert join me on the show, and I hope you enjoy the episode. All right, Robert, thank you so much for joining me on the Iowa Idea podcast. It's an absolute pleasure to have you here. If you don't mind, for our guests, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure, sure, sure. Um, as you said, my name is Robert Hansard. Um, I, uh, if I talk about myself, you know, it's, it's more like where I'm from kind of a thing. So I have to sort of be honest about that. So I would, I would just name the places where I think I have the most important footprints. And obviously the first one is going to be Rockford, Illinois, where I, where I was born, um, with its own set of, uh, conversation pieces that we could sort of get into if you wanted to. <laughs> right. Um, <laughs> and then Chicago, obviously, because that's probably where I spent. Well, no, let me, sorry. Let me say Des Moines, Iowa second. Yeah. Um, just to be chronologically correct. Um, cause I spent a considerable amount of time there going to Drake university for my undergrad, obviously, and working at uh, Drake diner and, you know, there's some interesting experiences in their own right. And then, and, and then, yeah, Chicago, which I pretty much, you know, always the family connection, always spend time there as a child and things. And, and um, you know, my dad was, uh, was on the radio broadcast. So he would always go to Maxwell street to pick up, uh, you know, good gospel records. So there's pictures of me with like a, a Polish, you know, <laughs> trying to eat a Polish at like, you know, 
just under a year or so old with some diapers <laughs> on, probably trying to scrounge it down. So I, I can remember that. So, you know, and then, you know, obviously, you know, living there um, since, the you know, late 90s on, really mid 1990s on um, after graduating pretty much most of my life is from living there permanently. And then West Africa, um, particularly Ghana, but also some other places around there, because um, not as a trajectory for sort of expanding my way to understand the world, but also too as a as a place that I spent a considerable amount of time in, um, you know, all, all told probably the longest period, maybe about six months. And then, you know, over periods, you know, a month here, a month there, you know, it's added up to probably a considerable amount of time for research. So those four places, I think, sort of say, just as spaces, probably say say some things about me. Yeah. Thanks. And yeah, so uh, when you, you left Rockford to go to, to Drake, uh, and your degree, your BA is in history, did you know you were going to be a history major when you were heading out? Honestly, I was a history slash poli sci guy or something. I thought I just knew I was going to be a lawyer. My dad was always talking about the law. I took the first class. I actually didn't think it was bad, but I was like the teacher I liked. And I'm like, honestly, I like the I like what you're teaching. I like how you're teaching, but I'm not all that interested or excited with the subject, you know. Um, and I ended up taking a history class too by a very important uh, uh, person there who had actually spent a lot of time in South Africa. And you know, her and I actually still t- stay in touch to this to this day, um, and kind of make jokes and talk back and forth about our experiences. But uh, that was big. Um, taking that first class and really grappling with some things I had only heard about in high school relative to the, you know, sort of African his- history um, was a big was a big one. Yeah. Yeah, because uh, because we, we went to the same high school. So and, and, and thinking that we might have even had some of the same history teachers, but even given world history, U.S. history, um, and then, uh, well, throw government econ in there okay. as well. But yeah. right, not a lot, not a lot of. Uh, uh, African or black history in, in the text that we were studying. Yeah, not at all, as a matter of fact. Um, and unfortunate and, and the nature of teaching and things. And, 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 you know, you know, we know schools have been challenged by that. It's not just wouldn't just be Rockford, although Rockford stood out some in terms of some of the, uh, issues around segregation and desegregation of schools. And, that, and, that, and that's contextual in terms of some of the things that were going on. But having said that, you know, I had some great teachers um, who really got me going on history. I had an English teacher that we all know. If I mention his name, you will have Pat Brophy. Yeah, we all yep. know. He was, a, he was a big one. I mean, um, he's a guy who could get me to read Huck Finn. And I hated Huck Finn, obviously, because of that sort of derogatory language. But he got me to make sense of what was really going on there. That was a huge eye-opener for me. Um, and then, obviously, the, the infamous Mr. Benson, who to this day <laughs> is his impactful to my experience. You know, but we used to joke because he could see the deficit, too. And in some conversations, he made that plain to me that he understood that. But we, we would joke all the time. I mean, everyone had a everyone had a nickname. My my nickname was 13th Amendment breath. That was my nickname. Um, and it's a little derogatory, I think. And, uh, uh, you know, you could see how maybe today that may not be the nicest thing to say. But by the same hand, a guy really, you know, taught me about thinking about history and thinking about uh, uh, knowledge. So, so I appreciated that. And I had to write, my parents were there to get me the right kinds of pieces that I think the academic, you know, early on weren't necessarily providing. So, yeah. Yeah. And uh, just going back to high school, you were also uh, big into performance in, in high school too. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. I did a lot of theater. Um, to this day, I always joke around and start quoting some Julius uh, Caesar or something silly <laughs> like that. I did all type of stuff. Though. Actually, I mean, I was in a, uh, 
what was the one? Arshnik and Old Lace. I played yeah. Teddy Roosevelt of all things. You know, like it was a Teddy Roosevelt like character. If anyone's right. seen the film, it would, it would ring a bell to you. Um, you know, a different, just a range of, of different kinds of performances, and I and I enjoyed that too. Um, just uh, exposure to the performing arts, I think, was very influential to me. Um, and theater just happened to be sort of the pinnacle of that. But again, you know, my parents had me doing a lot of piano and musical things just through church and things. So a lot of that was was kind of impactful uh, for me too. Yeah. Yep. Right on. And uh, I I can't let it slide. You did mention the Drake Diner. That was probably a pretty interesting place to work back in the day. Oh, yeah. I mean, I was just joking with my wife just not long ago about how some of the music, sometimes I would have dreams. I would wake up in a bad um, music that was on the jukebox would like be in my head. It's like, the, what's the song? Uh, Ow, Werewolf of London. I mean, nothing wrong with the song, all right? But, <laughs> but hearing it like 20 times a night, like over the course of several nights, right? could 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 get a little annoying, you know? Um, so I would have dreams. And I, I mean, I, I I think my most recent dream was maybe just a few years ago. I would have dreams. Robert, you got you got four, you got a table, a table four, a double sack or something. You need to go water these tables and all this kind of stuff, you know? And I would always laugh. And then I actually waited on the governor of Iowa at the time, Terry, uh, Terrence, what's Branchard or? Branstead, yeah. Branstead, yeah. And then we were joking <laughs> about that. Him and his kids came in. He was really nice. He shook my hand and everything. Not a huge tipper, but uh, <laughs> I'm just going to go ahead and say that. Um, yeah. But uh, very genuine, very nice. And everyone was like, Robert, you know, take good care of them. I'm like, ah, no problem. You know, I, you know I, was, I, was, I was doing my thing in those days. But yeah, Drake Diner. I mean, and, and, and even I don't I don't I hope this doesn't bring too, too much of a sad tone to this. But, you know, two of my managers um, actually in the night I was supposed to return um, were, were um, the place got robbed and two and a guy came in and shot and killed two people. A very horrible incident. And yep. actually, really, a lot of folks, it spread out. A lot of people were aware of it. Just a very tragic thing. And and I was and I would have been right in that section. And I was I was speeding on my way home from Chicago, jetting to get there to get to uh, to get to to work and, and and luckily you know or by grace it didn't you know wasn't there but but yeah i enjoyed my experiences there. even when i go back for relays i go to drake down and get a malt or something you know it's standard so. <laughs> right on right on <laughs> no it's good you so you you get back for the relays that's good to hear oh yeah every now and then every yeah. now and then i haven't been back in a while but i'd like to go back so uh Talk to me a little bit too about where your your master's and PhD work uh, going more to uh, kind of Afro Atlantic inspirations mm-hmm. and and kind of what what drew you in and what what grabbed your your interest there. Yeah, I mean, again, I mean, I have to talk sort of progressively about it. I mean, as far as my master, I did my master's at uh, Northern NIU, and I, that's where I did my PhD there as well. Yeah. Um, and, um, you know, I took a little break in between because, you know, after I done my master's, I, I had got an internship at the Chicago Historical Society. And, and, and the guy who's the VP there now actually had just started when I was interning there. And we laugh now because I've met him and had some, some conversation with him. And I was like, yeah, I just knew I wanted to be a curator. I just was like, this is the job for me. And, and, and I can laugh now how funny I thought that that really was, I guess. But, but, but at the time, that was something I really wanted to do. So I stopped school and went out and started working. I actually worked for Department of Children and Family Services in Chicago. That was a real eye opener for me uh, in a range of ways. I ended up doing some consulting and stuff, but uh, my dad passed, and then that really was the motivator to get me right back in school. So I finished my four years or so of my uh, and did my PhD work and uh, just defended it and went that way. But like some of some of the sort of trajectories for that, I think you know they do start at home. And you know, I always mention like you know uh, my neighbors across the street and my dad too um, had all these books. You know there were so many books. 
Um, and I was reading them all the time, you know, I was like my thing. So that was kind of a start local library, you know, same thing, just trying to read all that stuff and take it all in um, being so close to church, the, the Bible as a text um, and just reading it and even starting to think about it as history, some sort of got me, but it was the oral traditions that sort of opened me wide up and really turned the light on for me and made me start, forced me to sort of think about history and knowledge and all the conception of knowledge from a sort of a whole different sort of, sort of viewpoint. Um, so, so, so those kinds of things I think really sort of drew me into history um, as something that you know I, I would pursue as a career. Thanks, and uh, you just personally, I I kind of consider myself a history nerd uh, as well, and loved loved social science in general. But on history, uh, I th- I'm just kind of curious because this, and and I don't mean to make light of this because this is a, right you teach, and, but for me, one of the themes is as I get older, I'm almost. A, surprised in a way but almost dejected in how many patterns we see that tend to repeat themselves over time and it and just feeling like didn't we learn this lesson or couldn't we have learned this lesson when when i was a kid you know looking back at some things i just thought oh those those folks must have been idiots because they just yeah. weren't that you know evolved like we are and then then you see patterns playing out today that feel like they should have been banished to history but here we are living them again and i'm kind of curious as a as a history professor uh your your feelings on on patterns repeating themselves they do i mean especially i think where you can really sort of grapple with patterns i think is in the beginning of the early modern era you know the uh, sort of 1492 kind of space on up through to today where we really sort of see the way a global world is being made and the idea of globalness is being perpetuated through the primarily the sort of space of the West. Um, and, and that's getting, that's causing a lot of problems, you know, I, I think. And I just think that the lessons, the kinds of things that I think are repetitive that, that we don't want to sort of acknowledge is what, how power works, you know, or, or, or violence. We don't want to acknowledge the, the sort of the reality of these things. They're constant sort of features of our experience and maybe the need to wrestle with those or, or even um, whereas who has wealth and who does not, you know, and, and the parameters of that. And, and, they, and they remain, they very quickly go to that. I mean, you can almost find in history the moments where that sort of middle class, no, you don't have a middle class in, uh, you know, you know, whatever, 16th, 13th century, other kinds of places, but you have folks who are workers, you have small landowners, you have small sort of proprietors and 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 the, the, the gradual process of sort of taking them and, and, and removing them from sort of power and, and only allowing certain folks to get into that space of wealth and real income generation. And that, and that to me is, is very constant. Uh, um, and we need to acknowledge that. You know, um, same thing with the sort of nepotism, family and blood and, and, and royalness. And we won't sort of say, hey, wait a second. You know, this is the same sort of patterns, you know. Right. Um, yeah. Those kinds of things get, 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 can be very frustrating um, to sort of teach and unpack. I'm a, I'm a sarcastic guy. So sometimes yeah. I, I do that because it's the best way sometimes. I mean, our, our laughter, our culture, our art, our aesthetic are some of the best ways we wrestle out and, and come to terms with some of the hard truths of our, of our experience, I, I think, you know. Right. And yeah, I've always felt too, like in, in, uh, a couple things with, with humor and sarcasm is one, you, uh, you have to be smart to be a smart ass, right? That's right. Oh yeah. <laughs> Careful. Yes, sir. That's very true. And the, yeah. Right. Uh-huh. Yeah. The, the other is like it, it, uh, a lot of times humor does reveal a truth that, um, is sometimes harder to confront directly. Yes. Yeah. Very true. 
Uh, uh, it's the best way, though, sometimes. I think right. it gets you there, and then you can start to really unpack some of maybe what's what's at work when everyone sort of can loosen up, you know? Yeah. So uh, a couple of years ago, you published a book, Identity, Spirit, and Freedom in the Atlantic World. And I know, and, and we had talked about this just a little bit, too, and uh, also as you were talking about Ghana and where you've been here, but also the Atlantic world, uh, just kind of curious on, uh, for, from kind of that identity, spirit and freedom, what is it about the, like framing the Atlantic world? What does that mean to you? For me? I mean, <clears throat> I mean, and this goes back to really early too, you know, um, and I could maybe use some analogies, even in, yeah. you know, and this is kind of maybe oversimplifies to some, but I'm, you know, we're in church, I'm, you know, it's a nice church. We're there. And they, they did the, the sort of song about all the children of the world, these other children of the world, red and yellow, black and white, uh, you know, this whole song. And then they sort of gave a, a snippet of each person's culture. I remember they said yellow and then they froze. And then we, we all of a sudden the puppets were in ancient China and they were talking all this stuff. And they did red and then we got into this sort of Native American, nativist culture. I mean, a sense, maybe not, you know, some maybe stereotypical kinds of things there, you know, but, but still you got to feel, okay, this is a culture. Um, and they, you know, white, and it's the same thing. We got this sort of feel for culture. Then they did black, and then it was like they just played music, and the guy just danced. And I was like, what? And I was small, but I could still say, that's, I know that's not right, you know? And that was a driver for me. You know, that and, 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 and my, you know, my dad preaching about Egypt and talking about these places, and then I'd see these books, and I'm like, hold on. There's something. There's more. There's so much more here. And I, and I could see in a way that people would talk about Egypt, that they wouldn't get into Nubia or what what we maybe would call Mero and uh, other cultures. Nubia is kind of a pejorative a little bit. It's, it's as problematic as Ethiopia in some ways because it's sort of stereotypical. It frames all of those folks in yeah. that space. And you go from an ancient uh, culture that really is a, is a progenitor for Egypt all the way up to a place where you have Christianity and Islam that doesn't end until the 14th or 15th century in East Africa. So it's, it's, it's astounding. It's part of biblical experience, but you're, you know, you're not taught that. So right. to get back to what, what it is that you're, you're sort of, sort of spelling out, you know, um, the thing that just kicked me sideways was when I started to see, you could find the very cultures in Africa and find out where they were in the Americas and then see how much of their cultural experience they sort of grappled with, adjusted, modified, integrated, whatever you want to say. And, and, and seeing that stream across was like the biggest thing for me. And I don't think I, I ever turned back from that. That's, I mean, I'm still sort of in the space where I'm sort of trying to come to terms with, you know, all these different ways in which people do this. And then, and then it just invites you to look at these cultures so, so critically. Uh, um, so, so that, and, and then just the way we, you know, and if I, you know, I start with the church example, but if I get into even sort of more mainstream sorts of ways, you know, you look at how we see our world. I mean, you see commercials for banks or for industry, other things, and they, they will say Europe, in Europe, in Shanghai, in Paris, in New York. Um, now they maybe say John Johannesburg, but they weren't, weren't even saying that before. Right. And, and so Africa was just like, and I'm like, what the, you know, did we just miss something here? You know, so these kinds of things. <clears throat> excuse me, on, on, on a critical letter, I have, have really sort of played a role and been sort of part of the way in which I sort of said, okay, we got to sort of wrestle this out. And, and that's what my text attempts to do, you know, is to tell the story. These are kings and royals, they're fighting. I mean, there's the, the variations we talk about history repeating itself. Africa is such a prime reminder of the human condition, right? 
but but for me, you know, we, we want to overemphasize maybe the Greek and Roman and, and their perception of the human tradition, which is knowledgeable, which is, is wonderful and all these things. But to presume and to pinnacle that and then at the expense of these other cultures is mess. It's, it's just messiness. And so and, and again, it's a thing I, I look at these these spirit priests who could be who are philosophers essentially in their own right. And they're thinking in the world very, very critically and all these kinds of things. So, I mean, and, and then just finding them and finding the features of their sort of ideas manifested in the lives of captives when they come here or maroons who break away and resist or in all these kinds of forms. It's just it's something, you know, very, very interesting and, and innovative that I've always wanted to sort of pursue. Thank you. Yeah. And uh, I did want to talk to you a little bit about because uh, I, I know an area of interest is uh, maroons and 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 free blacks uh, for audience members that might not be familiar or, you know, for me too, uh, I just don't want to like say, Oh, I know. Right. And just say this for the audience. <laughs> if you don't mind, like, cause the little that I know about the, the runes are fascinating people, like fascinating story. And so I, if you don't mind telling us a little bit more about what makes their arc so interesting. Sure. Sure. I mean, these are the first resistors. These are the first real groups who question power, I mean, and, and and begin to sort of wrestle with it. And they often will influence what the free blacks and the captive laborers will do. Um, so like if I go to the Gold Coast example, which I've done a considerable amount of research on, right? So you, you, you can track the very ships, the very battles, the very historical moments that these people are exited out of Africa from modern day Ghana, which is what's called the Gold Coast. And then they end up in somewhere like Jamaica. And like, for instance, there's a woman, her name is Grandy Nan. She's the queen of the Maroons, right? She comes from Cape Coast Castle, which is right in Cape Coast in Ghana. I mean, you can, I, I was just at the castle, not even just a couple of weeks ago. And, and so, uh, you know, people are coming to this, but her story is that um, the, the priest, they knew she was gonna do something special in America. And, they, and when they found out she was captive, they gave her some potion to make her mute. And so she doesn't speak all the way across the water. She doesn't speak. Everyone's like, what's wrong with this? Da, 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 da. And then she exits the potion, right? And part of it includes a piece of metal and all these other things. And, and, and then this becomes her power. So she becomes powerful. And very quickly, she will lead these Maroons, the windward, windward or Eastern Jamaica Maroons. So these are folks who live right around the Blue Mountains, if you know the Blue Mountains in Jamaica, just north of Kingston, you know, in that proximity. And they just were never enslaved. They refused to be subdued by the British. And to this day, you know, uh, um, those were the groups that never, ever, they were never captured. And Jamaica is just a spectacular example of them. They, I mean, they really, they, 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 they caused real problems for um, the British uh, plant, plantation economy. Um, they came, the British sued for peace in several instances, right? Um, because these guys were so, you know, fearsome. And they would do things like the ambuscade or ambush. They would wrap themselves in leaves. And then they would hide in the mountains of uh, up way up in the mountains. And you have these high precipices and things up in the blue mountains. You know, some of these mountains go like they're sheep, they're flat face and they're, they're a thousand feet straight up, you know. And so these guys would get up here, spear, gun in an ambush, run around. And here come the British colonial militia. Most of the time they're hirees. Oftentimes it's not army. They're hirees. So they made people go up here. And these people, they don't want to go. And they're climbing up these mountains with all this stuff. They got the Howards on the back and all these big old guns. They're trying to set up a whole sort of military thing. And the Maroons are moving around them when they catch them. And then they had this thing uh, um, called a box cutter, which is like a flat kind of a knife that they would use to 
for the sugar cane, but these guys took it and used it obviously for other means. So literally the, the English report or, or yeah, the, the, the colonial reports would be like, um, the trees are attacking us, you know, essentially, because these guys would come out and just, you right. know, obviously do something, disappear back. And then it was just madness. Um, and that's just the Jamaicans. In Haiti, they play a role in the Haitian Revolution. St. Vincent is super interesting because you have um, Africans who come and become Maroons who integrate very real with the native peoples here, and then they become a whole separate culture in their own right. So it's, they're just dynamic examples. And yes, there are Maroons in North America. Um, there's some 50 or so well-known Maroon places, just, I believe, in the Carolinas, just around the Carolinas alone. So, so you got evidence of this as a sort of common feature of what happens when people bring this captive labor here. They're the first freedom fighters to me. Yeah. Before anyone else is getting up, standing up and resisting, it's them. So, 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 so you know, a real significance in that, in that way. Thank you. And as, you, as you've said, you, uh, you were just recently back in Ghana. How was the trip? I was great. It was great. I had a lot of good experiences. Um, you know, I'm always, always go and sort of enjoy the food and try to develop, work on my language a little bit more. That's something I'm really going to be taking a bit more serious now. I, I can speak little things, but not enough to really, you know, do as much as I need to be doing. So I'm, I'm working on that. But uh, yeah, I mean, I, it's a great time. It's always really good. I met a lot of, to get a lot of the narratives, I had to build rapport with folks because there's right. stuff they just won't tell. Yeah. So and, and it took time. It took time. And once I actually was able to build some relationships and people started to share some pretty important stories with me. And, and a lot of those became sort of features of my manuscript uh, or my my book, my book, I should say, and, uh, and, and impacted sort of future stuff. But 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 yeah, that kind of um, those kind of experience are just they're just so important, you know, and and, and going and, and back and forth and keeping that connection open. I like to take students there for study abroad and other kinds of scholarly exchange, even professionals like ecotourism things. So so it's just it's, it's a great experience. It's a nice way. It's always like my little I have to regenerate myself after being here and yeah. sort of stressed out about some things. Sometimes I can go there for a couple of weeks and I come back and I, I feel I'm all renewed. And that's, that's sort of how I feel now. So, yeah. Oh, that's great. That's great. Um, so what what is your your current line of research that you're doing? What's your uh, focus? Uh, well, you know, I've been sort of really I mean, I teach at Columbia College, Chicago. Um, and so, you know, they, 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 they're very interested in some of the aesthetics, the creative arts and sort of things. So I've been sort of into sort of the documentary multimedia kind of thing, a lot, of, a lot more with some of my work. Um, but I should say in terms of like actually publication and things, I have a new book coming out. Uh, it's called 500 African Narratives. And it's essentially 500 stories all over, everywhere from Brazil all the way up to, you know, North, you know, Rhode Island or whatever, you know, everywhere. Um, along the Atlantic seaboard, these people who can tell stories of being captured in Africa, can recount their lives in Africa, can talk about the Middle Passage, and then they can talk about captivity. Um, and, and so, and, and but our criteria was there had to, they had to be published accounts. So myself and another good friend, a, a colleague of mine, Aaron Fogelman, are, are actually working on this uh, book. It should be coming out sometime in 2022. So. That sounds fascinating. And so is 500 different narratives that you were kind of just doing data analysis on and and what? Uh, yeah, I, I, I just for me, from a, a research side, too, I'm just fascinated at like um, what patterns might emerge when you start looking at, at you know, just mm -hmm. interesting 500 individuals. Right. So not wanting to take away, you know, somebody's kind of own individual story but i'm sure there there is some 
some just you know empowering and disturbing patterns that you see like in these yeah. in these life stories yeah no quite i mean that's that's a great description because it's everything from someone who was a slaver had been a slaver for years and all of a sudden he or she or he i should say comes across a certain child and it just gets transformed as a person and says okay well you know i have to you know and suddenly this child becomes very important and, and then they, they sort of Try to, try to try to pave the way for that child and advocate for that person as much as they can in the midst of this sort of slave system. Two very, very deceptive and violent and horrible examples of people's uh, you know, liberty being just taken. Um, and, and the thing I think that stands out is that, is that it's not necessarily state-sponsored. For me, I didn't find a lot. Of, there are state-sponsored examples. Some states, I mean, get heavily engaged in the slave trade depending on the time of the, you know, the chronology, depending on the era. And things, but very rarely are we talking about sort of state-sponsored systems where the state mandates, okay, let's go out and get this. Oftentimes it's war between states. And then it's the Dutch or the Danish or the English or the French or the Spanish or Portuguese, I should say, uh, who are at the coast who say, ah, they're fighting. I'm gonna take advantage of this. And oftentimes that brings us our largest number of people, um, more so than these sort of organized regimes that will go after and and, and pull people and bring them to the coast. And you do have that. I don't want to say that that doesn't occur. Um, but certainly it's provoking of war between states. And in the midst of war, when they're losing, when one state wins, what does the winning state want to see happen to those losers with the encouragement of additional gun support? Hey, you could give them to us. We could take them and we'll take them away from you and give you maybe an exchange, oh, of course, an exchange, guns or gold or what have you, or whatever the resource or commodity may or may not be, then, then it's negotiated out. So that's probably one thing that jumps out at me. It's just not as much state-sponsored stuff as I, as I guess I expected to sort of see. Thank you. Yeah, and that, what that's interesting to me is to is thinking about, um, you know, like sometimes in, from politics, it's like you never want to waste a good crisis is, is kind of a, a, a phrase that I've heard. But thinking that uh, uh, t- taking advantage of the chaos of war to, you know, kind of further further just the these completely inhumane kind of views of the world but that it was just how taking advantage of of those situations Mm -hmm. that wouldn't have even crossed my mind until you said that so thanks for sharing oh no no problem and if i could add one other thing yeah also say that it's very interesting how the you know the european uh partners or interlopers at the coast fight each other quite a bit too and, and it goes it fits right in when 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 the seven years war kicks up and the british and french go at each other you, it's playing out in west africa it's playing out in the caribbean it's playing out in north america so that kind of thing too is i think it's a real important thing to consider too right right yeah uh, so uh want to uh just check in too is i i know before we were getting ready for for this so far are there any topics we haven't covered that that you thought we'd talk about that you want to mention otherwise i I mean i have plenty more questions for you but i i don't want to just keep driving it in a certain direction no 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 keep 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 driving because it's keeping the thing on you know i mean i have a tendency to get into a i can't stop talking so that's fine So as as um, as a you know somebody had that uh, you know when we were kids I remember as just uh, one of the funniest most creative people I I knew 
And now, like the the important you know history work that you're doing and the stories that you're telling, I'm just kind of curious too on on your craft. Uh, if you ever feel stuck, then you could say, Matt, I'm a pro. I'm never stuck. Uh, but if you ever, <laughs> if you ever feel stuck and what are your techniques for getting unstuck? Yeah. Mm, I mean, I don't want to say this. Like, I know I, I don't think I get, it's not getting stuck that gets yeah. me because the subject I can just, I mean, it's always there. I love it, taking it in. I think, ah, it's finding your own voice and working to find your own voice sometimes. Cause you will suddenly look up and you've written 10 or 15 pages, but you just parroted someone, not even intentional. And I've seen myself do that. And then I got to go back and all that's deleted. I got to yeah. start again. So I've done that a few times. And, and that's one of the things I'd say that really can be a sort of a, you read something that you really like, like I'll give an instance. And this is a historian who I don't think gets as much credit as he, he deserves, Ray Key. Um, a lot of people don't even know who he is, but his work on the Gold Coast I mean, it's spectacular. It's some of the best historical reading I've ever sort of sort of read. It just, I can't put the thing down. It's page turner stuff. Now, most folks may pick it up and be like, wow, uh, I'm going to throw this, you know, <laughs> I'll see you later. I'm not, I'm not reading this. Yeah. You know, but me, I'm just like, I mean, because he's speaking to so many things. You know, he's one of those kinds of writers. And, 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 and so, you know, I was so excited about how he was talking about stuff. And all of a sudden, I saw myself sort of sounding like I'm too much. And I was like, ah, let me go back and just sort of cut that out. And then maybe just draw back, go back to maybe some documents that we're reading similarly and think about how the documents may shape what I, I would write about. And so then I could find my voice a little bit better. And if I was to say to some folks who maybe do this or want to do this, that's what I would say. Make sure you find your voice amongst a, maybe a range of other things. That's something I think would be very important is just, you know, keeping that voice because then you got to write it out, you know, and, and those good ideas. And, and that's the other thing, too, that that's a killer, too. Sometimes I get good ideas at the wrong time and I'm like, damn. And I forget, or, you know, it's a great idea. I'm like going back, oh, I got to remember this thing the next day. And I wake up the morning, I'm like, what the heck? Well, is it? I, you know, and then it's gone. So, and that's happened a few times too. So, but those are the really, really big challenges for me, um, um, you know, doing it. I mean, um, but like, if I, if I tell people like, this is what I'll tell you to do. If, I, if you want to do this, here's, you know, some suggestions, maybe I would say, I'd say, you know, and this is maybe you're not going to be able to read everything, everything, read it. History in, in your area and even outside of what you study, read it all. I mean, I would just say as much as you can, take it in, read it, know it. And, and then um, what else? Um, except critique, which is sometimes hard to do, yeah. myself included, because, you know, you want to. Um, yeah, I don't know. We think we all think we know. So I don't know. But it's good to accept critique, you know, um, so that that's a big one. Um, you know, I had a good, great mentor who really sort of guided me through and would always be reminding me about the leap motif. Uh, my good friend, Aaron, Aaron, this is my good friend, Aaron Fogelman, you know, he, yeah. I mean, that was what he just kept me on task with it, you know, and um, his excitement about my subject and me bringing him to this subject was 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 just super exciting for me. And it's probably why we, you know, we still partner today. And I consider him probably just one of my very you know close, close friends and colleagues when it comes to this work, because he's an expert in his own right. And he's written quite a bit about, you know, he does, he studies early, early Germany, early modern Germany um, is his focus. But 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 just getting me in that right space was there. So having a good mentor, uh, I got more. I don't know. You want me to give you a few more of these? Or? Oh, yeah. That, uh, well, yeah. Actually, I want to, uh, we'll get to the, uh, a couple questions. Okay, let me stop. You said leaf motif. Was that what? Le light motif. Light motif. Light, less okay. light motif. Like, it's okay. just uh, the, 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 you know, my, my theme in that book was freedom. 
right? Subtly, it was yeah. about freedom. And it was it was a counterpoint to maybe folks like Thomas Jefferson, who says, well, Africans, he didn't know if they had a capacity for freedom. Or maybe these ideations, there's a writer, Orlando Patterson, who writes all this stuff about, well, freedom has had, takes on these different forms. It's personal, it's sub-rental, it's civic. Um, that's freedom. And do we see those features in Africa? And I started like looking at some of this and then it, it's, it's innovative and it's a starting point, but I could, I could wipe it out. And, and, and what I think I learned from a very effective historical writer, Aaron was just, Hey, just pepper that freedom in there, pepper it, just let it go in there. It's still going, people are going to catch it. Don't feel yeah. like you have to write it out every, every time, because if you just, just, just bring them to it, you know, that kind of thing, let them get to it. And then, and then I like to write in a way that, um, you have to you have to come to the conclusion in your own right, you know, to some degree. That's my goal. I don't know if that always happens, but to bring that person there and then get them in a space where they have to sort of say, hmm, well, let me make sense of what I just read, my own self, and draw my own conclusion. These are the this is the evidence. So and this is what this person got from it. What is this evidence telling me? That kind of thing. So. Thanks. And I do want to go back to about uh so just from my perspective, like with having having certain ideas where I like I yeah I don't write it down or I don't capture it in a good way but I'm like you know this is such a good idea there's no way I'll forget it right and right. then and then you're like yeah it's gone and you're like pass Matt damn you yeah oh yeah oh yes yeah, and I feel like I, I want to walk around like with a small notebook all the time and still like then how do I curate it? But yeah, that it's frustrating because you're like, ah, I had a pretty good idea and and it's it's almost like waking from a dream, right? You can't quite tease it out when you're done. Right. And, and it was easier when I was single, I should say, <laughs> you know, when I was single and I was writing and I just could write all day, I'll come, you know, you go out, you don't have to worry about nothing, you know, go <laughs> get some fast food, sit down, turn the TV on, sit there, whatever. Then when you get in the mode, TV's off, you're just going to go yep. all night. And so in those times, I, I would get up and write. If, I, if an idea came, I got up and wrote it down at least so I could remember because it was important. But with, you know, kids, as you know, sleep is done. <laughs> There's no more sleep after that. So, yeah, that, that's that's one. Right, right, right. Yeah, and trying to be respectful of everybody else in the house. But yeah, you're right. When you I when you're too. by yourself, it's like yeah. you can turn on all the lights. You can turn you know start a, co- a coffee pot in the middle of the night if you wanted. And get going and get start getting rocked. Yep. and I did that yep. quite a few times. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> So, yeah, I'd love to talk a little bit more, too, about uh, advice. I do want and I, I really appreciated kind of the, the uh, owning your own voice concept, too, and like yeah, that you do realize yeah, you're heavily influenced by somebody. But then is it is it your own in in the way you're thinking about it? So I really appreciate you sharing that. Uh, we talked talked about uh, some advice that you've received, but also uh other good advice, either from from a mentor that you've received, and and like for me, sometimes it's like, you know, we were too young and cocky. Like you know, some some elder gives us some statement that just sounds like gibberish, and then you realize it was that was pretty wise and huge. Yeah. You can it, you you continue to unpack it later, but uh, yeah, for me that's some of it, and and then others. I from an advice perspective, I I'm stealing from Austin Kleon's book, Steal Like an Artist, where he says, when we mm-hmm. give advice, we're just talking to our younger self. So, is there advice that you wish you would have had earlier in your life, or some some the wise mentors that we might have laughed off? Yeah, uh, Benson could have been one of those guys, right? Benson could have been one. <laughs> Benson, Benson may have said one or two things that that stuck with me, you know. Yeah. Uh, um, generally, uh, uh, 
but yeah, I, I think I think one thing is just like asking the right question. That's a big one too. I don't know if I said that, but it's important. Uh, um, you know, um, and then let's see the ones I said. I don't know. I want to make sure I get it, but then maybe learning to write and rewrite history. Learning to write history. Um, someone told me that once, and, and I was like, well, you know, I couldn't sort of conceptualize, sort of put it all together, what that means. But asking the right question and learning how to write about it is, 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 is sort of saying, make sure you don't waste your time. And make sure you, what you're doing is something that's innovative and new. Um, and I think a lot of the challenge that I think scholars face is, is you, you get out there and you say, well, everything has been done. There's nothing new under the sun. And, and to some degree, that's true, but there's always different ways you can approach topics and themes and concepts in a new and innovative way that someone hasn't done before. That's just, you know, the nature of sort of knowledge and the compounding of knowledge over time is that, you know, all of it's valid. You know, I anticipate that in, you know, some decades or maybe sooner, someone will come along with something different and say, well, a lot of what, you know, this concluded, we can now, based on that, we can say this. We have all this to sort of go from, you know, and maybe some of what was here, maybe we, we don't need as much. Now we can look at this more concretely because it, it, it's become clear. I mean, and like an example of that for me um, was, you know, one of my sections in my book deals with this this terminology, this sort of naming of, of folks. They're called the Komrati, K-O-R-O-M-A-N-T-E-E. -E. And there's about, if you look at the Dutch, it's a C, if it's the English, I mean, everybody's got different spelling of it, this and that. But like, Everything I wrote and even some of what I mean, everything I read and even some of what I wrote, I argued that this is just sort of a it's an identity that's only a feature of the slave system. It only grows to fruition because there's a fort called Comrati or Fort Amsterdam um, that uh, ultimately is that yeah, ultimately uh, the Dutch run the thing. But, um, you know, it, this is the this is the thing that, that that's supposed to affix people's identities to because you have folks that will come to Jamaica or folks that will come to Barbados or folks that will come to North America and they call themselves, they call themselves Comrati. And they're like, well, hmm. And then so folks are saying, well, this is just a legacy of slavery. So we have to sort of read it this way. Be careful how you classify this as a real identity. And, I, and, and, and sure enough, one of the scholars, an elder scholar who had been doing this for some time, and him and I start talking, and he, and I think he was just saving it. I think he was just saving it for the right time. And then he said, well, you should go and look at the archaeological evidence at Comrati. I said, okay, I'm going to do that. And, and, and the second I did, I was like, you know what? This is, there are real people here. Comrati is an identity. These are real people. This is something that, this wasn't, this, this was here first, and then the fort came and all this came. But this identity is a real concrete one. It has a history that goes back into and shows connections very clearly to the local cultures and other kinds of things. But like something like that um, is very, very important. And, and so if you're not thinking in those terms or, or at least you know your presumption is um, you, you, you're not sort of writing this in an open-ended way to leave space for this, you can get yourself in maybe a bit of sort of trouble, at least to the degree that some folks will come along and say, well, you can see now there's very clear evidence, such and such and such, you know. Um, so some of that maybe is, is, is the humility of it. You're not the one who knows it all. You can presume to write in that context. And I, I like that voice, but just be careful. Know that in the end, hey, you know, this is adaptive, it's modifying, and we want to integrate all these different lenses and viewpoints. And that means that some of what you may or may not add might not be relevant, you know. So that, that, that kind of a thing, I guess. Um, yeah. Does that get at Yeah. Yeah, and it just as you're saying that too, I, you know, just because we've been talking about history so much, and just you know, kind of thinking about Rockford and education. But you know, when you're when you're young, uh, at least my perspective, 
there was only one narrative, right? Like you thought, like yeah. like like when you're exposed to like U.S. history, you thought, oh, that's that's the definitive story. That that's it, right? And then you, as you get older, right, and you you start reading other narratives, right, and then it's you know all the all these things that you have to sort out. I just find really interesting too, like just as you were talking, like things that break things open for us or and I think that's hard for people when they feel like they've understood something that that might not have been the whole story or or, or might be true but I do I do love when when things get upended and how we we might reconsider something but it's it's interesting because from a transactional standpoint you're like man I went to school I learned that story do I do I really need to relearn it and it's like well no you, you have to learn other stories that's right yeah, no, I, I mean, it is. And just that sort of space of being sort of, you know, we are, I mean, we that's how we do. I mean, that's not, that's how it works non-politically, I guess, you know, yeah. that's how it works. People share and integrate. It's just, it just is. Cultures, that's what they do. <coughs> yeah. Excuse me, sorry. <clears throat> no, and, and, uh, and, and as we were talking about different cultures coming together too, and, and this was actually, Another, I mean, this ties together a little bit with Maroons, ties a little bit with Rockford. But a while back, I was talking to Howard Allen, and mm-hmm. uh, you know, we 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 were talking about uh, you know, one of the uh, one of the interesting things as as foodies is when cultures have collided and different influences from different different regions, and not to make light of right what have happened to people, but. Right. Like you could even take like uh, Vietnamese. Right. I mean, heavy Chinese dominated heavy French and but interesting food. Right. So interesting you know. food. Interesting <laughs> food. no, you're right. I mean, I, I use like I mean, another sort of maybe aesthetic thing as an example, which is just, you know, music. And I'm like, yeah, listen, as bad as people want to call this transatlantic stuff. And there's some bad aspects to it. There's a cultural thing that happens in the context of that. You know, um, and even as I'm saying this, it's reminding me of such an important point about about gold that we could revisit that really is a trajectory for this the, the, the transatlantic economy. It isn't people. And, and a lot of people forget that. Gold is what starts it. And, and because I started at the Gold Coast, I can yeah. see that. So now you, you had shrewd Europeans and shrewd locals who said, now you want to trade gold? Let's trade. Let's, let's figure out how we're going to trade this. And, and for a while there, that was what was happening. It was the gold economy. It's only when these sort of plantations come online, as people say, that things sort of shifted and, be, and became something different. But 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 just having said that, and thinking about what you're saying about like something like food, and yeah, and I like Howard Allen's uh, maroon, uh, the stuff he's doing, maroon sausage, and yeah. that he's even said he's going he's he's going to Ghana. I think that's a great piece to go to get a front end look at the sort of cultures that the Maroons profess with such, you know, um, validity, like going to that Fort Comrati and hearing a guy there tell me, he said, I'm going to tell you something. He said, when the Jamaican Maroons come here, they are shook up. He said, they get shook up because it's such a powerful hit for them because they can feel the energy of their relatives there. You know, and that that, that, that hit home to me. I could say, hmm, I understand, what, you know, you know what that's about, you know, that kind of thing. But Sorry, not, I keep getting off track no, there a little no, bit. That's, great. See, that's why your questions are good, because you just keep me on task. <laughs> but like, I mean, Bob Marley, would we have Bob Marley if it wasn't for the transatlantic economy exchange? And the answer is no, we wouldn't. Um, and so you got a spectacular breadth of culture and music and aesthetic and all this stuff, but you don't have it without the transatlantic economy. Yeah. You don't, for the good and for bad of it. I mean, and so that's those kinds of legacy and jerk. I mean, excuse me, Howard knows, he knows, yeah. I mean, jerk, you don't have jerk um, without it. And, you know, like if you ever read Zora Neale Hurston's account and uh, uh, what is it? Uh, mules and 
I forget what it's called. My Horseman, I think. Yeah. That might not be the right title. But um, if you ever get a chance to read, she describes how they made the first jerk. They, she, I mean, they hunted the meat. I mean, hunted down the, the meat. They caught it. They dressed it. They put it on pimento logs. She talked about how they put the sugar and the other spices on the logs and smoked it. I'm like, look at this. I mean, like in an hour today, I mean, jerk chicken, you know, I mean, yeah. that kind of thing. I mean, but you don't have it without the transatlantic exchange. Those African spices and other things don't necessarily make them the way here and integrate with the tomato that's here or integrate with other things that are here or this kind of thing. The peppers, I should say. Yeah. And sort of become something new and unique, you know, this kind of thing. So you have to read that. No, that sounds that sounds great. Yeah, because I'm also a big fan of uh, jerk and uh, another another Erab. You remember Noah Butler? Oh yeah, I do. Yeah, so he um, lives yeah. in Iowa City. Uh, so he's he's actually his PhD is in coronavirology. So he's a medical oh, wow. researcher. Uh, but we uh, <laughs> we would tailgate together, and we would we would make uh, uh, a version of jerk chicken for sandwiches at at the tailgate and at. At Iowa tailgates, you have some folks that just drift in and out that aren't in. They they're not part of your tailgate, but they're just grabbing free food. And uh, right. so everybody at our tailgate knows how spicy these chicken sandwiches are. <laughs> Somebody just grabbed one, and and it was like a young undergrad, I think, trying to impress his girlfriend. Like how look at look at how I can grab this stuff and yeah, yeah. <laughs> bit yeah, into so. it, and you could, his eyes are what and I'm, and I remember what, you're still trying to show your girlfriend you're tough right now, aren't you? <laughs> to, to quote Mr. Benson, that's why we have summer school. <laughs> I used to love that. That was like my that was my favorite favorite Mr. Benson of all. I used to used to I, I don't care when he said it, and he would say it to kids, and they would do something silly. Uh, and, and you know, hey, Mr. Benson, I remember being in the library. Some kids, hi, Mr. Benson, how are you? And he goes, hey, how, how are you? And that's why we have summer school. Okay, and just keep walking. <laughs> oh, so good. <laughs> I would laugh so hard. I mean, you know, that's why I like that guy. I mean. Uh, Benson too. He was he was a guy. Sometimes he would uh, if there was a student he didn't like that didn't show up, he would have a pop quiz that you make it the easiest thing. So it was just free points. For- yeah, yeah, I love that. I mean, some of that stuff I do. I mean, I do that when I teach. I mean, I mean and I guess that's probably where I got it from. That's probably the first person that did that. Right, okay, now um, half the class is here. Okay, all you guys just need to do is just sign in. I'm gonna I'm gonna give you the test. I'm gonna give you the, the, the short answer questions for our little quiz, and I'm gonna give you the answers right here. Here to go. Here go the five answers, and everybody gets it. And then you go leave early. You know, so yeah, no, it works too. They're in class the next week too. <laughs> right, 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 right. Oh, it works. Yeah. Oh, Robert, it was such a pleasure catching up with you, man. And thanks so much for for the work that you're doing and the the insights today. Uh, it was it was it was. I really appreciate you taking the time, man. Oh, my pleasure, my pleasure. I'm glad I was able to do it, and uh, um, this is a great experience, and it's kind of getting me motivated to sort of think around how to do this a little bit better because I can see this is a really nice way to sort of exchange and, and have some really good dialogue. Um, and maybe it's you. You're the good host. Oh, thanks, that, man. That helps, that helps out too, man. So, And I'm going to have to come up to Iowa and see one of these games here. I, I told, I got another friend who teaches up there too, who does a Native American history up there. So I'm going to have to come up there and, and check you guys Right out. on. Yeah. Please, please let me know if you're in town. Oh, I will for sure. I'll definitely do that. Yeah. And there's... Um, uh, there's a, a guy with a food truck here called Rodney. Rodney's Jamaican jerk chicken. Uh, oh, okay. And uh, I remember I was watching some friends play music outside. And Rodney's was like, I 
but I was right next to right next to his uh, truck, and the wind was blowing the smoke off the grill. It's and my eyes were water. You know, it was like the burning yeah. sensation. But oh yeah, it's oh hot. it's so so good, so good, so good. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> that is the truth. Yep. <laughs> All right, man. Will you take yep. care? Have a great holiday. Yep. Take Talk care, to you man. later. Enjoy.